Welcome to the J.D. Power Travel Podcast. I'm Michael Vermillion with J.D. Power, and with me today are Mike Taylor, who leads our travel practice, Jenny Corwin, our lead analyst for travel, and Andrea Stokes, our hospitality practice leader. So Mike, Jenny, Andrea, welcome. Hello. 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 So thanks for joining today. Mike, first topic is in the rental car industry and the recent announcement of um, Hertz's bankruptcy. So what, what's the implication of that? Is Hertz going to disappear or are they going to be around? Yes, they're going to be around. I, I, I have to quote actually you, Mike Vermillion, and something you said that really struck me as being very true, that Hertz is a billion-dollar brand that just has too many cars that not enough people want to rent. So uh, they have to <laughs> just adjust that ratio which is what they're going to obviously have to do in bankruptcy. Um, as far as what people can expect, I mean, it, it Hertz is going to operate through the bankruptcy. Most people renting a car probably won't notice um, much of a difference. There might be some difference in terms of con- terms and conditions in the contract, but it would be rather fine print and probably very unusual circumstances that would make any impact on anybody's experience. Uh, and you may know that uh, they also won our award last year as the uh, rental car company with the highest customer satisfaction. So they're doing a lot of things really well on the customer service front. It's just on the financing part of it, they seem to be in hot water. In fact, I, I believe they made the top 25 list out of the 25 largest bankruptcies of American business. So uh, they just have too many cars. Uh, that's going to have an effect on two different parts of the automotive world. One is the OEMs, uh, specifically Ford and GM who sell cars to Hertz. Hertz certainly uh, at the moment has a glut of them and doesn't pl- probably plan to buy many more. And then the second uh, market that's going to be affected will be the used car market. Uh, they're going to dump probably a half a million, and dump is probably a strong word, but let's use it anyway, um, <laughs> you know, a put release uh, or probably around a half a million or cars or so in the next several months into the used car market. Uh, and that will probably depress used car prices by somewhere between 15 and 25 percent, according to most people's estimates. So thanks, Mike. Sounds like it's going to be a great time uh, to buy a used car if you're in the market uh, this summer. So switching to hospitality, we have a couple topics uh, today. Uh, first up is this idea that every state's going to be in a different position in terms of their timeline for reopening. Uh, for example, in Hawaii, uh, you still have to uh, sit out a 14-day quarantine if you visit the state. Looks like that's extended through the end of June. And then at the same time, uh, Las Vegas is opening this week with uh, some properties uh, for MGM scheduled to open on June 4th. So uh, Andrea and then Jenny would like to hear your take on this uh, in terms of, uh, number one, how are the brands going to navigate this challenge of different rules and different timelines? Uh, And then number two, How's that going to impact the customer experience? So, Andrea, uh, why don't we start with you first? Sure. Um, yes, it does make it very difficult for you know the major hotel chains to to keep track of all of the different uh, reopening um, timelines and guidelines, and it, you know it's often uh, by state, but also uh, by you know individual cities or localities where. Uh, those guidelines might be, might even be different than what the state um, 
state's guidelines are. So it's very, it is very, very challenging, not only for the hotel chains, but also for the traveler uh, to kind of navigate their way through um, all of these different guidelines, especially, you know, travelers who uh, may be taking road trips and might be traveling from state to state. And again, every state um, has different guidelines at this time. You know, I think in regards to Las Vegas, um, I think it will be very interesting to see, you know, how quickly uh, everything uh, starts to open up and, and, and tourism starts to come back to Las Vegas. Las Vegas is a huge tourism market. And I think, um, you know, as goes Las Vegas, as goes the tourism industry in the U.S. So, uh, you know, it's a positive sign. Um, and again, it will be interesting how the, the large Las Vegas casinos kind of navigate the, this phase of, of slowly reopening um, and welcoming, welcoming guests. I think the same goes for uh, Walt Disney World in Florida. Um, so I just read that the parks will be reopening, uh, I believe, in July. And again, another very large tourism destination. Um, so, you know, again, I think... I, I think it will be very interesting to watch as things progress throughout the summer. Thanks, Andrea. Jenny, what's your sense in terms of this uh, staggered schedule for reopening? I, I think from a consumer perspective, there's, there's just going to be some confusion, right? And, and as, as Andrea mentioned, when at these different phases of opening and everybody's got a different strategy for opening, particularly, you know, thinking of Disney World, Things are going to be a little different for a while, right? The amenities consumers have come to expect maybe changing the way you receive those things, the packages you can book, all of those things are going to be a little bit different for a while. And um, I, I do think that, you know, based on one of our more recent travel pulse surveys, we saw that you know, consumers are going to be pretty open to road trips in the near future. And so that means they'll probably be looking for a place to stay. If it's not with family, it'll likely be in a hotel. And so, I, I, their best bet is really going to be to to call the hotel directly that they plan to stay at. Really plan their route out. You don't know if you know restrooms are going to be open, rest stops, what stores are going to be open, particularly if you're traveling through states. Make sure you're looking at the state's rules and regulations. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people are planning to travel to Hawaii, like you said, but if you've got a 14-day quarantine, that's pretty much most people's vacation. So um, now that's probably a better place to be quarantined than some of us, but. Uh, I, I think you know, you'll want to take those things into account when you when you plan that trip from a consumer perspective, and and hopefully the the hotel brands are going to do their best to really understand. You know, we've all been inside for a long time, and everybody's anxious to get out, but we also want to be safe. And I think the hotels are trying to develop the best plan they can to accommodate. So. Okay, great, thanks, Jenny. Mike uh, Taylor, switching to airports. Uh, one of the um, things we're likely to see when when travelers return to airports are uh, temperature checks. And I think there's a question in, in the industry today in terms of who is responsible for conducting the temperature checks. Is it the airport? Will it be TSA? Will it be the airlines themselves? So um, what's uh, what's your sense? Well, to quote WC Fields, there are legalities involved here. So the dilemma here is from the airport perspective is, do you know we're letting people into a public space, which will soon be crowded, hopefully. Uh, eventually it will be crowded uh, environment. Um, do we take temperatures at the door? And if someone does have a temperature and we don't let them in the building, 
were essentially denying the airport, essentially denying them boarding uh, to an airline. And where does the financial liability lie? You, you know, hey, LAX, you're not letting me in for my trip to Hawaii, where I'm going to spend two weeks under quarantine. Um, you know, you owe me mo- you owe me money for my entire vacation. And then the airlines, of course, have the same similar uh, problem. You know, what happens when they deny boarding based on um, someone having a temperature? Uh, so there's some liabilities and legalities involved there. They're at the moment they're dancing around the the issues. They you know, using this breathing room here, as Jenny mentioned and Andrea mentioned, there just aren't that many people in the airports at the moment. So it really hasn't become an issue, but it's going to come to a head very, very quickly. And someone has to decide who takes responsibility and what happens when someone is running a temperature and is denied boarding. Thanks, Mike. Jenny, what what do you see as the potential impact on the uh, traveler experience here with the, the temperature checks and even potential confusion in terms of um, who is responsible? Yeah, I, I think from a traveler perspective, right now, this landscape is confusing. Uh, right now, I will say most of the airlines have a really forgiving cancellation policy, right? So hopefully you'd be covered under that. But that's a whole different set of rules and regulations. Um, obviously, the focus here is safety. And I think most consumers are you know, behind that. But but where it happens is, is really up for debate. I mean, from a purely scientific standpoint, I would say... Yeah, put it at the door, right? But I completely understand Mike's point, and I think many consumers would understand both both perspectives as well. And I, and if you it's your trip to Hawaii that gets canceled, of course that's going to impact your satisfaction with the airport and the airline, right? So the best the best thing travelers can do at this point is really just check before you go, know the rules of the airline, make sure you read up on what's happening with the regulation at the airport you're traveling through and just be as informed as possible because things are changing at a very rapid pace right now. And invest in a home thermometer. Yes, (laughs) Yes. the luggage scale and the home thermometer, put them right next to each other. Oh, that's a great idea. (laughs) Thanks, Jenny. Uh, So Andrea is switching to our second hospitality topic for this podcast. Uh, an interesting development is uh, colleges and universities considering the use of ho- empty hotel rooms as um, extra dorms as a way to kind of spread the students out. Uh, so this could potentially solve you know two problems with um, kill two birds with one stone, as they say, right? Uh, with uh, universities trying to figure out how to bring college students back and hotels trying to figure out how to uh, fill empty rooms. Yes, it's very true. I I thought this was a very um, interesting development, actually. Um, And, uh, you know, I think an example of hotels thinking outside the box in this environment of, you know, very, very low occupancy uh, now and even forecasted into the future. Um, And so hotels that are located very close to universities. You know, some hotels are actually located on campuses um, or at least land, right, that that's owned by the university potentially um, are, you know, very much um, thinking about about this and actually talking with uh, the local colleges and universities about helping helping them to to bring back students. Um, I, I get the sense that you know, colleges and universities are very interested in bringing students back on campus in the fall. Uh, but, you know, perhaps they have to rethink, right, dormitories and 
the number of students that they're actually housing in, in a dormitory. So it'll be interesting to watch this development as time goes on. Thanks, Andrea. So Mike, just to finish up uh, our last topic for today uh, on the airlines, uh, it looks like Boeing has um, announced they're going to resume manufacturing of the 737 MAX. So uh, why, why are they making that decision uh, now? Well, I, again, uh, if you recall in previous podcasts, we talked about um, you know what the disposition of the 737 MAX was going to be. And the industry really likes this piece of equipment, as they refer to aircraft, um, in that it solves a lot of problems from them. And it, it's financially, it is a great value for people, for airlines to purchase and then to operate as well. Again, the key variable here is that you don't have to retrain yeah, the cabin crew and the pilots and co-pilots if you're a 737 qualified um, um uh, airline employee, you can work on a 737 MAX. And they have some work, obviously worked out all the bugs. And as we've mentioned before in this podcast, one of the things that the airline manufacturers, aircraft manufacturers do extremely well is reverse engineering out the faults they find. So the 737 MAX is probably, probably going to be in the same echelon as every other aircraft that operates in around the world today, making it one of the more safer ways to travel uh, it's probably going to be just as safe as walking across the street in downtown Manhattan at any time, uh, you know, nighttime uh, during this COVID crisis excluded, of course. But it's uh, good to see it back because it does solve a lot of problems, extends a lot of range for uh, a lot of markets. And you'll see more and more city pairs uh, eventually when we come out of this COVID crisis because the 737 MAX is used. Thanks, Mike. So that's going to be a wrap for this podcast. Mike, Jenny, Andrea, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, thanks to our listeners for joining as well. To learn more about the J.D. Power Travel Practice, please follow us on LinkedIn uh, or visit us on the web at jdpower.com business. And we'll see you next time. <music>